Hello, dear leaders, dear influencers out there. This is Lenka and Alex from Earn More Workless, bringing you a completely new, brand new episode of the Influential Executive Podcast. And today we have a power lady. Rita McGrath is one of the best known management strategists. She's as well the professor at Columbia Business School. Well, you are up for a treat because Rita was even listed by a magazine to be one of the 25 smartest women to follow on Twitter. Well, I was impressed. So I'm curious what you're going to think about this interview. Yeah, this is all about business strategy. So, you know, every business is like a huge ship going over the ocean and there's somewhere a captain deciding should we go a few degrees to the left or a few degrees to the right. And that is Rita's specialty, to stand there next to the captain and say, you know what, have you thought about doing this? Rita understands how the world is constantly changing, how business and strategy no longer happens within one industry, but spreads over entire arenas. So what does that mean for the way decisions are made, not only at the top, at every level of the business? What does it mean for your career? How can you prepare for this world? Rita is soon coming out with a new book, Seeing Around the Corners. And we speak about all kinds of cool things, innovation, strategy, entrepreneurial mindset, future leadership. So there we go. Enjoy this episode with Rita McGrath. Rita, Ms. McGrath, welcome to the Influential Executive Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We are very excited about this interview because you operate in the center of business <laughs> at Columbia University. That's what I hear in your speeches. That's our brand at the very center. Absolutely. The cool thing is the business world is everywhere and most people work for a business. And even though the majority of people, they experience let's say the work floor or the middle layers of business, you hang out with <laughs> the ivory tower. <laughs> so we'd love to find out more about what's going on over there. Okay. Um, one thing that we heard in one of your videos is that the business world is changing. Mm -hmm. And with the changing business world, we need different skills in our careers to be successful. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners, ambitious professionals, team leaders, about what is expected of them in this new world? Sure. Well, the, I mean, one of the things that people need to be aware of throughout the evolution of their careers is that early on in their career, having strong subject matter expertise, so know-how, you know, IQ, that kind of thing, tends to be strongly associated with success. Um, as you become more senior, what you'll find is social capital, emotional intelligence, the ability to get the best out of others becomes increasingly important and the, you know, the expertise gets almost taken for granted. So you have uh, this interesting transition that a lot of people really struggle with, we, you know, sort of, um, well, I'm the best at, I don't know, bond trading or something in the whole planet. And all of a sudden now I've got to be the best at cultivating other bond traders. And that becomes a very different challenge. So I think people need to be prepared for that transition. Yeah, exactly. And one thing, uh, one thing you mentioned is you need a different skill set. Mm -hmm. I also mentioned social capital. Mm -hmm. What does it mean, social capital? What does it mean for my everyday life? So a great way of thinking about this is something that my good friend and colleague Thomas Kolditz talks about. Um, and Tom is a former brigadier general. He led West Point's parachute jumping um, you know, team. Uh, he's a very, very interesting person. He's now the dean at uh, Rice University. Uh, but he makes a distinction between peacetime CEOs, as it were, and wartime CEOs, following on some observations that were made by Ben Horowitz, um, who is a very famous entrepreneur, venture capitalist, wrote a great book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And what Tom will tell you, he said, is, you know, in peacetime, people will put up with all kinds of 
horrible, ineffective, you know, poorly managed leaders um, because things are going well. So, you know, as, as long as things are going well, it, it kind of doesn't almost matter. When you're in wartime, however, and in a business context, what that means is you've got a setback, you've got, you know, something unexpected happens, you've got a transition in your business. Um, that requires wartime leadership. And the thing about wartime leadership is that you need to have built up the capability before it's needed. And Tom wrote a great book called In Extremist Leadership. And as he puts it, what, what he was interested in studying was um, something kind of different than what most management books study. So most management books study people that got themselves into trouble and then maybe they got out or maybe they didn't. So a lot of the great management books, you know, Jack Welsh turning around GE or, or you know, Alan Mulally turning around Ford and they're all great stories, right? But what Tom will tell you is that these are crisis amateurs. You know, these are people who uh, got into trouble and maybe, maybe they got out or maybe they didn't. What he was interested in studying was people who were crisis professionals. You know, they knew they were going into dangerous situations and prepared themselves accordingly. And what he will tell you is one of the requirements of leading in environments like that is people have to feel that they can trust you, that they can trust you in a situation which is complex and difficult. And so when I talk about social capital, it's that notion that I've, I, I've had repeated interactions with you. You know you can count on me. My behavior is consistent. Um, and let me give an illustration of what that looks like. So you may remember about three, two, three years ago, uh, Microsoft released this um, artificial intelligence chatbot. Uh, she was supposed to be sort of this teenage girl and her name was Tay and she was released into Twitter. Um, and the idea was to just experiment with, you know, what did artificial intelligence uh, mean for natural interactions with other human beings, right? So if you sent Tay a message, what Microsoft thought would happen would be, you know, you'd say, oh, Tay, you know, I had fried eggs for breakfast. And she'd say, oh, wow, I love fried eggs or whatever that was, right? You know, just sort of interact in, so the next generation of computing. Well, unfortunately, Twitter's can be a pretty awful place. And within about 24 hours, Twitter users had basically trained Tay to be a racist, you know, a misogynist, to just the worst of humanity was coming out of her virtual mouth. Um, and so Microsoft pulled the experiment and it was hugely embarrassing and everybody was sort of saying, ha ha ha, Microsoft, what a stupid thing to do. But what Satya Nadella, who is the you know, CEO of Microsoft did that I thought was really, you know, just illustrative of this way of leading <clears throat> was he sent the team a note and he said, well, you know, that didn't go the way we expected, but it was a really interesting experiment. I think we'll learn a lot and I've got your back. Don't, don't worry. Try, try, try the next thing. And what I think that does for people is, you know, they knew it was, didn't go the way they'd hoped. So it wasn't like a success, but on the other hand, it was, it was a very rich in learning failure. You know, they learned what happened when you put an unprotected, <laughs> you know, innocent enough chatbot in the middle of the worst of humanity. <laughs> and, uh, and so now they're, they're, anyway, talk about a lot about artificial intelligence, right? And so, you know, from that disappointment comes a lot of very rich learning, but also Nadella made absolutely sure that the human side of it, that these people wouldn't be deterred from being willing to try again. Yeah. I, I, re I really like that. Um, I, I just have a question because you are in the center of, of a huge university mm -hmm. and a center of business. Is it something that you help your students to develop these skills that will help them to cope with pressure and with, with crisis? Sure, sure. I think, um, you know, I think one of, the, one of the observations I would make is that, so the world that we're going into is increasingly what you're finding is you can't really talk about strategy today without also talking about innovation, right? Because, you know, back in the day when I first started in strategy, all the cool kids were doing, you know, industry analysis and very, you know, rich calculations and vast spreadsheets of data and all that stuff. And those of us studying innovation who were largely working on individual cases and, and you know, because innovation is hard to generalize about, right? You, know, you can't get a you know, huge data set of 20,000 data points of every innovation a company has ever tried. That doesn't exist, right? So, so we were working with different things and we were kind of huddled in the corner for warmth and all the cool kids were doing like, you know, back then, back then it was like secrets of Japanese management. Oh my God. Anyway, um, <laughs> so what's happened in the intervening years is competitive cycles have moved more quickly and advantages have become shorter. 
is that you find you have to innovate continuously because your old advantages are fading away and your new ones have yet to be created. So strategy and innovation are really coming together. And then increasingly, innovation has a digital overlay on it in some way. There's, there's almost nothing that you can do with respect to innovation that doesn't have some kind of digital component. And here's where this passes into the university. We don't train people for that world. You know, the world that we've trained people for is, you know, the world of conventional business strategy, where what you're looking to do is create a sustainable competitive advantage, and your, um, you know, the goal is efficiency and you know, multi-market competition and all that kind of thing. Um, but the the I think the world that we're moving into requires this different understanding of what's going on, and people aren't prepared. So what I find a lot is people come into our classes just you know they know things are changing they know there's something different going on they're deeply uneasy about it and they don't know what to do they don't even know what to call it and uh, it's interesting i was talking to my partner in fact just yesterday about this and we were trying to puzzle out you know what is it that we do with our clients that's that's unique and i think it's that we've lived in that world that innovation digital strategic nexus for so long that to us it's kind of it's very comfortable. And when people see that, they're like, oh, those people kind of know where we're going. And I think the, the helpful thing is once you break it down and decode it, it's not so scary at all. It's just different. You know, it's just a different way of living. And to go back to the, the Tay example, right, in a world where you've got to be experimenting and you've got to be trying new things, yes, it was a disappointment, but it wasn't like a stupid failure. It was something low cost. I mean, it was embarrassing, but it didn't cost a lot of money um, and, and low risk, basically. And, you know, an experiment to try to learn something about something that could be really important in the future. And of course, artificial intelligence for Microsoft has got to be central to their agenda. So, you know, to me, that was, would be an example of something that in, in the world we live in, you know, the, the sort of mm -hmm. innovative digital world, fine, it's fine. In, in the world where, oh my God, you make a mistake, you're going to get shot for it, that it's not fine. And, and that's a different environment. Yeah, we're way past that. And we, we see the huge power in shifting your focus from the outcome to the process. Mm -hmm. And now when the goal not becomes to achieve some massive success, but when the goal is to learn, mm -hmm. everything changes. Mm -hmm. You start to see work as a series of experiments. Mm -hmm. And as long as you reflect on what works, do more of that, what doesn't work, either fix it or stop doing it. Right, now you right. create this cycle of continuous growth inside of your organization. Absolutely. And it can basically be done in all layers, at the top, in the middle, mm -hmm. and uh, on the executive workflow. Yeah, and it can be really fun. I mean, I think people get so frightened by the unknown that they forget this can be super exhilarating. It can be really enjoyable. <laughs> you know. Well, I'm, I'm really curious, Rita, how did you get to business strategies? Like, when did you get passionate about it? Really, it started um, with my first few roles out of university. Uh, I was very interested in the public sector. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in politics. I was interested in government. And one of my early assignments was digitizing, essentially, back in the day, in a very primitive way, uh, digitizing the activities of government agencies. And that got me very interested in large-scale organizational change because to, to take a manual process and make it digital, you know, it's not just digitizing something people are already doing. It's really rethinking how work gets done, what the roles are, the power relationships change, you know, and, and uh, all that kind of thing. So that got me interested in large-scale organizational change. And then when I decided to go back to get my PhD, which I did at the Wharton School, at the University of Pennsylvania, I found a home in the entrepreneurial center there. Um, which was run by my longtime colleague, Ian McMillan. And the, you know, he, he wanted to know what I was interested in studying. And I said, well, you know, I'd be really interested in implementation and large scale organizational change. And he said, well, you know, that's pretty dull. Of course, today we think this is super, super, you know, hot. But back in the day, he said, well, that's pretty dull. Tell you what, why don't we think about that set of act activities in the context of corporate mentoring and strategy? And I reflected on it and I was like, fine with me you know it could have been digitization it could have been any number of things um and then what happened was kind of a stroke of luck we got a three-year grant from Citigroup 
to study, to do case studies of a whole series of their corporate ventures. And what was particularly brave about this particular study was they wanted us to study both the successes, the ones that had been huge successes, mm -hmm. but also the ones that hadn't worked out and to try to deeply understand on a case-based level um, what, what made the difference, you know, what, what separated out seemingly attractive businesses that it, at the outset you couldn't have told whether they were going to be successful or not, what separated them out. And that, that was hundreds of interviews and people being delightfully candid you know, about what happened because it was all confidential, of course. And we studied <laughs> 23 of them in, in real depth. And that really was, was the tipping point for me. I said, this is just absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, and I learned to do interviews and I learned to do field research. And, and uh, that's, that was the beginning of where, where, where it's taken me. Yeah, and it's it's so powerful because you you find yourself speaking to heads in in the business world and a change of a few degrees in their strategy that impacts millions of people employees partners clients and the people in their surroundings and it can be just one idea yeah. one simple idea one small decision that makes all that impact yeah, the way I think about, you know, the senior most people, um, and increasingly it's not about telling people what to do, right? It's more about putting in place motion. You can almost think of it like, you know, you drop a pebble in a, in a still water and it has these rings that go out. And increasingly <coughs> what leaders are doing is shaping those conditions so that you're, um, you know, you're not, you, again, you're not saying, oh, do this, do that. Here are your marching orders. You're saying, Here's generally where we want to get to, right? Here's the goal. Uh, let's be clear about that. Let's be clear about how we're going to measure success. But, you know, I'm kind of open to how you design the, um, the outcome. I mean, a great example of this that's going on right now, and you talk about small things that can have a big impact, is um, the investment firm BlackRock. Uh, and their CEO, Larry Fink, has put in his annual letter to his investees and shareholders he said, you know, we need to be thinking more about purpose and we need to be thinking about corporations as good corporate citizens. You know, we need to be thinking about all the stakeholders, not just shareholders. And this is a guy who's a major shareholder. So this is pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. And he said, we need, you know, we want, we want to invest for the long term and short term profit taking is not going to get us there. So we, BlackRock, are interested in understanding how you, CEO, are going to make a sustainable company. And I don't mean that in the environmental sense, although that's part of it, but sustainable in your communities, sustainable with your people, sustainable in terms of giving back to the society that gave you the resources to be so successful. Now, notice he's not telling them what to do. What he's saying is, these are the outcomes I'm interested in. And I'm very interested in hearing about how you're going to achieve those goals. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's about treating your team like uh, a set of champions. Mm -hmm. Uh, like a coach tre treats their sport, uh, the sports team, you know, they are the talented superstars. Right, right. So, of course, there's some work to be done in shaping an environment and then, you know, let the team do the magic. Mm -hmm. This is brilliant, especially for us millennials, you know, to hear that <laughs> purpose is on the agenda of one of the major investment firms. Mm -hmm. Good things will come from that. Well, I think it's a potential turning point. You know, I think we've gone way too far over on the side of financialization and this notion that corporations are supposed to be run only for their shareholders. That's an insane idea. Uh, <laughs> Thank that you. Is, you know, I mean, and the reason it's an insane idea is that, that many people have a stake in corporations and saying, just because I gave you some money, now I'm entitled to the, the, the benefit of, you know, long hours and social commitments and community efforts to make the place a great place and efforts to educate your workforce. And, you know, to, to just say, I have no responsibility for any of that. I'm just going to reap the rewards of it and hand it over to a bunch of people who, you know, maybe hold my stock for four days. You know, that's just, why, why did we think that was such a great idea? Um, I, I just, I, you know, and it, it got very popular in the 80s. And in fact, it was business schools in part that were responsible for popularizing it. But it's a very lopsided view of what companies are there to do. And I, I think it's an excuse. You know, um, if you don't want to undertake the difficult work of really building, you know, a community of, as you said, team players that, that are 
true to all of their shareholders, that understand many parties made a contribution to the success that you have, and it's part of your responsibility to keep that cycle going. If, if you're the kind of CEO who doesn't want to deal with all that complexity, well, oh, you know, increased shareholder returns becomes a very easy out, right? Um, you know, and it's, 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 I just think it's, it's it, we are starting to see the backlash against that, thankfully. Yeah, and indeed. Well, sometimes you need to hit a wall to finally stop and calm down and zoom out, you know, see the bigger picture. I think a lot of it has been short-term thinking. And now that some red flags start to pop up, for example, in the environment and the allocation of wealth and all of this, it gets us to stop and think and look at the bigger picture of, hey, what are we doing here together on this planet? And for well, how you know, the, the reality is that, you know, corporations, people that are very wealthy, they live in an institutional context. And relative to the bulk of humanity, there are, you know, few of them. And what I think people are starting to realize is, you know, the metaphorical pitchforks are out. And you're not going to be given a license to operate by society in this way if the vast majority of people feel it's not an equitable um, arrangement. Exactly. So now, uh, now we're going to uh, make some change happen. And <laughs> you, you mentioned in an interview, I think yeah. it was 2014, that the three key strategic challenges on CEO level were one, to find the leaders of the future. Mm -hmm. So talent development. The second one is business growth. So how do we further grow the business? And the third one, oh, I just had it. Um, <laughs> well, innovation. Mm -hmm. How do we keep innovating? Those are the three big questions on the minds of the CEOs. Mm -hmm. Is it still the case now, uh, five years later? Um, yes. Yes. I think uh, developing future leaders is, is a huge topic. Um, and if you talk to almost anybody, what they'll tell you is, the single biggest obstacle to our growth and success is we just don't have enough good leaders. Um, certainly growth, you know, it, it, it's like any organ organism, you can't just stay still, you know, you're, you're developing or not. Now, whether that means you're growing your revenues or whatever, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but developing as an organization, not standing still, I think that's really critical. Um, and certainly innovation, I think that's now, I think where we are with innovation, I think we're past the stage where people need to be convinced it's important. So there's awareness out there now. But where I think we are in, unfortunately, in many cases, is what I call innovation theater. So people know innovation is important. It's on the agenda. Okay, well, what, what, what do we do? Okay, we're going we're gonna to take all the senior team and we're going to put them in an airplane. We're going to send them off to Silicon Valley. Um, you know, they're going to ride around on the Google bikes and they're going to get a you know, Facebook sign and all that stuff. Um, and they're going to drink coffee in Palo Alto and they're going to hear about the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that's great. And then they get back on the airplane and they go back to headquarters. And, you know, it's the same place it was when they left. And so... It's sort of, I call, as I said, innovation theater, where what you're really doing is, is things that are sort of shiny objects and showy, but they're not really building an innovation capability. And the sad part about that to me is that we know how to do this. I've been studying this for 25 years, and there are very predictable, repeatable things you can do to create innovation as an actual proficiency in your organization. And yet, you know, I mean, a typical thing that happens is they'll say, okay, you know, Johan, you're Mr. Innovation, go figure it out. And Johan goes into a blank room, right? And maybe it's cool and it has a foosball table or whatever, but, um, and he has a blank piece of paper and he makes it up from scratch. And so don't do that, you know, learn from other people's mistakes, make your own mistakes. Don't, don't repeat the mistakes other people have made. And so, um, you know, my encouragement to people is get educated about this before you go starting off on some program because, um, you know, it, it can be very systematic innovation. And then it has three basic processes that you need to structure. Um, the first is how do you get great ideas? And of course that's important, but that's, that's not usually the biggest problem. Now, you know, most organizations I work with, they have ideas coming out of the walls. You know, it's, it's their ideas everywhere. So the next challenge is how do I take some of those ideas, not all of them, but some of them, 
and enter into an incubation process where incubation is the process of going from, wow, I've got this great concept for, you know, customer service on bicycles to something you could actually introduce to the market. So that's the incubation process. And then the last piece is, let's say you're successful and the thing starts to take off. Well, now you've got to scale it and grow it. And that's a phase change. I call this the acceleration process. And the reason for that is you can think of your little business, you know, like an on-ramp and the main business is a highway and it's going along at hundred kilometers an hour. And somehow you've got to accelerate that little business and get it to um, be able to join with the corporate parents. So that means uh, you've got to invite HR in and all of a sudden compliance becomes important and hello legal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, technical debt and all that stuff. Yeah. And people forget that, right? They think, oh, we're just going to be this merry band of pirates and we're going to go on forever. A lot of times also the team has to change. So your, your people that are very good at finding a new business model Mm -hmm. may not be the people who enjoy replicating a business yeah. model. You know, so, so there's a lot of, of, of skill to managing those transitions. And, and you know, there are many more models for this that mm -hmm. are more complicated, but I think if you keep it down to three things, people can kind of keep that in their heads. So yeah. in, ideation, incubation, acceleration. Yeah, super powerful. I'm, I'm really curious, Rita, where, where is your role in this whole process? So imagine that you have this company and they say, well, Rita, we have this innovation, you know, that we want to we wanna implement. At which stage do you come and when do you leave? When is your work done? So it really depends what their objective is. Mm -hmm. So the, the best way to use somebody like me is if you actually want to create that proficiency. And a typical way I would engage is, is sort of step one is just figuring out where are you. You know, because every organization is at a different level. And we actually have a scale that we've developed that measures this. So it goes from level one to level eight. So a level one innovation proficiency organization, you know, think of an electric utility. Mm -hmm. You know, your job is to literally keep the lights on. You meet with your regulator once a year. That's what sets your pricing, right? And the rest of the time, the innovations that you're pursuing are all really around a very well understood value proposition. Right? Yeah. So that would be level one. So you're not out there ideating and thinking of, oh, wow, you know, what is what is artificial intelligence? I mean, but, you know, you're not doing any of that. Mm -hmm. um, as you move through levels two and three, that's where you start to get innovation theater. You start to see pockets of innovation starting to happen. Levels four and five, things are now more widespread. You're seeing better understanding across the organization of what it takes. And then as you get into the upper levels of maturity, the company starts to become known for innovation. It starts mm -hmm. to attract people who want to be there because they're innovative. Uh, it, starts to, um, it starts to be seen as a you know, case study and that kind of thing. Um, so the first step is really, where are you? And then, and then the, the, after that initial diagnosis, it's then, okay, if we were to pick two or three really high impact next steps, what would those look like? So depending on where the company is, that might involve doing some project level coaching. So I've got three innovation projects come in and teach me how to better move them forward. And so we have a whole toolkit that we use, um, the core of which is called discovery driven planning. And it's basically planning to learn while at the same time reducing risk. Mm. So we, we would that at that point would work at the individual project level. But I think one of the things that's important is you can't just stay at the project level and a lot of innovation consultancies. That's basically what they do. Because if you've got a parent corporation, you've got a mothership to manage. And so a lot of the work that I do is kind of going back and forth between the level of the project and the level of the corporate entity, the governance structure, the management structure. When do we see this? What's the right metrics? What are the right disciplines to impose on this? There's a portfolio management piece that comes into mm -hmm. it. So I'd say when I get involved would be when a company has said, wow, you know, we realize we have a challenge. We need a new way of operating. Can you help us figure that out? When I would leave would be when they, they've built that capability and they can do it themselves. And that's what I'm all about, by the way. So, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of consultancies are really about fostering dependency. You know, mm -hmm. they're always after what's the next project, what's the next project, what's the next yeah. project. And that's not, I don't need to do that. So, you know, I'm very happy to say congratulations, here's your certificate of <laughs> completion uh call me if you get into trouble <laughs> otherwise you know <laughs> keep me posted you know that's i mean i'm happy about that nice. as an educator that that's my goal right 
it's to build capability. That's super nice. You really make it about the client and not about yourself. And that's, that's true that it keeps happening, I think, in, in pretty much every industry very often. Now, my question will be, then we have this beautiful innovation that the equals kind of change and that equals lots of people being impacted by that. And you speak about we are all entrepreneurs, whether we are entrepreneurs per status or whether we are employees. Now, how would such an entrepreneur within an organization behave or which set of skills would the person have to have in order to cope with everything that is happening that relates to innovation? Well, I think you need to think about being an entrepreneur in a couple of different ways. Like, I think very often we have this stereotype of the entrepreneur. They're like, you know, they're these wild eyed people in black turtlenecks and they're, you know, a bolt of lightning hits and they're, you know, and, and that's not really how it works. Most, even most successful entrepreneurial companies, there may be one person who's the face of that company, but there's always a team behind them. Um, mm -hmm. So people, even in an entrepreneurial context, have different roles to play. Uh, people have different tolerance for ambiguity. People have different tolerance for uh, risk-taking. Um, and this is another myth about entrepreneurship, which, oh, entrepreneurs are fabulous risk-takers. Well, some are. Most aren't. Most are very, um, you know, uh, not, not careful is the wrong word. They're, they're calculating about the risks that they will take. They have to eat and pay their rent. Well, exactly. You know, so, so they're not going to sort of throw the dice and hope for the best. Um, they've got a process for it. So when I say we're all entrepreneurs now, what I'm, what I'm encouraging people to do is have enough self-awareness that they can be comfortable with the risks that are right for them, mm -hmm. but also know where they can add value. So, you know, if I'm the sort of person who's really uncomfortable with very ambiguous situations, let's just say I just am, I just am. Like, I like to have a very carefully defined environment. I like to know what my goals are. I don't want to come into the office every single day and go, wow, what's the world look like today? You know, I, like if I really want a program and a process and so forth, then the place in the entrepreneurial process I belong is that scale up that, you know, now that we've invented it, let's scale it, let's make it big, let's, let's, you know, what you want is someone, you know, someone who, who just, like the thought of coming to work and designing the perfect supply chain relationship is what turns them on. That's the kind of person you need in that phase of the entrepreneurial cycle, yeah. right? And, and I think, and that's just as entrepreneurial, I mean, inventing a really robust world-class supply chain, that's what made Walmart what Walmart, right? Yeah. It's not that it's not entrepreneurial, it's just not kind of inventing the whole idea. So I think um, um, even if you look at Amazon, which is, of course, very entrepreneurial, but a lot of their innovations are getting friction out of the system, right? So yeah. why should a company, why should a customer have to click three times? Let's see if we can help them to click once. But, well, that's not coming up with a whole new concept, but it's very innovative and very entrepreneurial when you think about that. It's just not as completely unbounded as something which is like take a blank sheet of paper sort of thing. Yeah, I love that. That's where you make operational excellence into a competitive advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of companies who aren't able to attract or retain people that like to do that. And, you know, if you think about them, they're very, they're often very creative, very innovative, but it's really hard to scale. If you look at a lot of the design consultancies, for example, the kind of people they attract are the blank sheet of paper people. The, the operational people kind of feel like they don't belong there. And so the, the scope of these firms is by definition limited um, because they just, they just, they'll do the innovation upfront part, but they don't do the scaling part. And that goes to somebody else. Yeah. I, I would love to zoom in on the leadership part. So we just established that developing future leaders is one of the, the key questions on the minds of the big uh, CEOs. Mm -hmm. And that's great. That, that shapes room for opportunity for all the people listening to this interview right now. Now, what would the perfect leadership development program look like so that any CEO is confident that, hey, when my high potential people, my ambitious driven people learn these things or go through this set of experiences, I know that I can safely hand over my legacy to them. <laughs> well, the first 
conclusion from research on this is that the people that are ultimately best prepared to take over as, as the, at the top are people who have had um, a variety of experiences and exposures. And so instead of their careers looking like career ladders, mm -hmm. uh, they look much more like career zigzags. Um, and many times you'll see them take a move that's, you know, in strictly speaking, a lateral move. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I was, you know, a something or other in marketing and I took a lateral move over to operations to learn that or maybe I was in consumer products and I took a lateral move over into industrial um, so what what you're looking to develop in these leaders is a broader range of experiences so that their intuition is much more informed by a variety of contexts mm -hmm. and the reason that matters is you know a lot of times when we get to these big leadership roles, you know, Nadella at Microsoft as an example. Um, you know, the, 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 the ambiguity and the breadth of choice you can make is, is hugely broad. And your intuition about that is informed by the experiences that you've had. And just as an example, um, so Nadella is a Microsoft lifer. I think it was his first job out of his university training. So, you know, technically he doesn't have the um, the breadth of seeing a whole lot of other industries. However, one of the development experiences he had was he was given permission to shadow uh, Reed Hastings of Netflix. And so for a couple of years, what he did was he was kind of an insider at Netflix. He got to go to their management meetings. He got to follow Hastings around, he got to have conversations with them. And so even though he's a Microsoft lifer, he had this rich, deep exposure to a completely different environment and culture, which he would say today really helped him think about, you know, some of the challenges he felt when he was in that blank sheet of paper world and like, what, what, where am I going to steer this company going forward? So I think to summarize, you know, you want a variety of experiences. You want experiences that are going to enrich your intuition. Because intuition is only as good as the experience it's based on. You know, you, you can have a lot of intuition, but if, if you know, if you don't have relevant experience, and this is where a lot of CEOs go wrong, right? They they say, oh, you know, I trust my gut. Well, that's great. Trust your gut if your gut is smart. But if your gut has had no experience to the environment that you're trying to make a decision about, it's not going to be a good gut. Uh, so you want to have some kind of double check like I, I don't know if intuition I don't know I don't really connect intuition that much to information or experiences that I collected but how I understood it is that like my intuition something that I intuitively feel is good and then you want to have the double check with the information with the experience that I collected to know whether it's a right or wrong decision is it something uh, that, that that you were trying to say or do you Thing that intuition is based on the information experiences collected throughout your life? Well, intuition is very advanced pattern recognition. So let me give a couple of examples that my, my colleagues at Columbia use. So the problem with most of us in life, in most of the decisions that we make, is that we have no way of knowing whether the decision was correct or not. Because there's a fundamental disconnect. You can do everything right and have things still go wrong. Yeah. You can do things that are completely stupid and still have a good outcome. So, you know, in normal life, it's very difficult to close that loop, right? Uh, so, you know, your spouse says, do I, does this dress make me look fat? You know, are you going to get accurate information in, in response to that question? No, you are not. <laughs> you know, we all know that. So if you think about, if you think about um, who, you know, what, what profession is the very, very best at detecting when someone is lying, mm -hmm. right? detecting when someone is lying. And the answer turns out to be it's customs inspectors. They are superb at detecting when people are lying. Now, the reason for that is they are among the few human beings that have the opportunity to see whether their intuition was correct or not. So every day you process hundreds of people through the customs line right someone looks a little bit twitchy or shaky you say excuse me do you have contraband in that bag and they say oh no and you say okay let's just have a look and what happens is over time right you develop this sense for what are the patterns that go together with somebody who's highly likely to have contraband in their bag and so your error detection rate you know improves dramatically so that's what i mean by intuition it's mm -hmm. it, 
having the ability to see those patterns and draw conclusions from them. Now, I'm not saying be fact-free. You know, obviously, you, you want if it's a big decision, you want to you want to do your research. You want to have things um, that are that are um, you know coming together. But I think part of the dilemma of traditional strategy is we have this notion that you could analyze your way to the answer. You know, and this was the era of three ring binders and five year plans and you know here's our industry roadmap and blah 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 and you know today it's much harder to do that right instead strategy making today relies on um, what's sometimes called abductive reasoning which is you know we're used to deductive reasoning right if these facts are true this also must be true we're used to inductive reasoning i see these three things therefore maybe that caused them now abductive reasoning is saying i've got some data points and I'm going to infer from those data points what might happen. So it's future oriented. Mm -hmm. And it's really the way managers think. It's, it's just a fancy way, way of naming it. Um, but increasingly, you can't analyze your way to what the right answer about the future is. Right? You just can't because the data aren't there yet. So you, you have to gather what data you can and then make an informed guess. So let's take an example that's playing out right now. Um, you look at a business model like Facebook. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've been saying for probably about a year, maybe even longer, that, you know, there are factors that will undermine, you know, the business model Facebook has created, which is so successful. And, and you know, you, you can list them, right? The societal willingness to tolerate data brokering, um, the increasing knowledge <laughs> by ordinary consumers of how their information is being used. Um, the willingness of employees to be associated with the brand and on and on. And so, you know, you can start to say, well, okay, what, what would be some early warnings that things are really changing? And just, uh, I think it was yesterday, the new governor of California has basically said to the legislature, we need people to have control over their data. We need them to have the right to determine how that data is used. And if somebody's going to use their data, they should have the right to be paid for it. Now that's you know a long way from being a law, but the fact that a governor of a major state, by the way, which is Facebook's home state, is willing to go to the public and say, "Look, this ought to be the game. This ought to be the playing field." Well, you know that if that gets carried to its logical conclusion, it doesn't mean Facebook's model is dead, but it means it's going to be much less profitable because now they're making the case that the people who are essentially the targets of these ads. Uh, deserve to be paid to have to put up with them, and so it's a different it's a different model, right? Yeah, and it's it, it could still be great if it's less profitable as long as all the stakeholders win. It's a win 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 situation. Yeah. Everybody wins. So well, you know, I think the original idea behind Facebook was a very nice idea, right? And and the fact that so many people are on the platform means they're getting value from it. So I'm not like anti Facebook. I just think what they've done with the data part of it is so, <coughs> I, I think it probably, you know, my guess is it started as, oh, you know, here's a cool way to monetize what we've created. We justify it on the basis that we're providing this great free service, right? And then I think it sort of snowballs. You know, the success becomes so extreme. The money is so great. The profits are so incredible. And then you get, on the public markets, right? And everybody says, okay, that was great. So what are you doing for me next year? You know, how much are you growing and what are you putting in? The and so it creates this snowball type pressure and it becomes very hard to stop and say, wait a minute, are we happy with where we've come? And maybe we need to rethink some of those turning points in the journey. And, you know, I, I don't make predictions. I don't, but you know, there is no reason Facebook can't continue to be a perfectly viable company. As you said, with a win, win, win setting. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Rita, would you like to participate in a new section in our <laughs> podcast interviews? We started it yesterday based on a, uh, on a discussion we had over lunch. We said, what element can we add in to add even more juice into our interviews? Oh. And it's nothing uh, to be afraid of. It's actually a lot of fun. We, we designed a rapid fire question round with a few short questions or words where we ask you for a one word response. Oh, okay. Or two words are also allowed, like association. So let's start. Are you ready? Sure. Let's do, let's it. do it. So the first word, leader. Alan Mullally. Wow. A successful marriage is? 
one that grows. Great. Partner. I beg your pardon? Partner. Partner. A trustworthy. The purpose of life. To help others. Contribution. Joyful. Fun. <laughs> uh, to be jazzed. <laughs> Meditation. Inner calm. <laughs> what is the number one thing currently on your bucket list? Thinker. Somebody I want. Somebody I want to meet. Somebody I admire. Yeah, or or something you want to experience. A thinker. No, a bucket list. What is currency? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said number one thinker. Oh. <laughs> thinker on my like somebody I want to meet before I die. Like, what? <laughs> oh, the number one thing on my bucket list. Uh, um, hmm. It's a longer answer, um, but it's basically this idea of demystifying innovation. Ah, oh, I love that. What is the best personal development book you ever read? Uh, personal development. I think Marshall Goldsmith, um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, is a really good one. Uh, what does come up to mind when I say memory? A long chain, you know, like a river of experiences. Nice. Yeah, like a blockchain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, think about your life, right? I mean, you are where you are because of this whole river of experiences you've yeah. had, each turning point that shapes you. I talk about this in my new book, um, and the book is called Seeing Around Corners. And you guys might be interested in the last chapter because what I really talk about is the need to build uh, resilience around inflection points in your own life and, and the importance of reflecting on that. And that book is already published or is it going to be coming out September of 2019? Mm. Uh, so if you, if you want to learn about it, we've got a pre-order sign up list um, and pre-order people will get lots of goodies. We're still working out what those are, uh, but, <laughs> but it comes out in an actual form uh, in September. Oh, that's beautiful. Super cool. And uh, by the time we also make an effort to uh, tell our audience that it's coming out, we can, uh, we can present this interview once more because this That'd time... Be great. That'd be great. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe we do another one closer to the book. Sorry? Maybe we do another one closer to the actual launch. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Okay, for sure. I think more than half of the questions haven't been asked yet. So, uh... <laughs> well, and I, um, I'm going to be in Europe um, right around the time of the book launch. So perhaps uh, you know, I might do a couple of different cities, but we'll see. Yeah. That's beautiful. Really? That would be lovely to meet you in person. Now, mm -hmm. Rita, for all of those people say, I want to learn more about what Rita does. Either they want to work with you or they want to pre-order your book, where they can find you. Uh, my website. It is very creatively called readamagraph.com. <laughs> so uh, they can go there. And from there, you'll go, it'll take you to the book website. Um, I have a monthly newsletter, which is free. People can sign up. You just go to the website and give me your email address. It's very, very easy and it's free. And each month, what I do, and this might be of interest to your viewers, is I take a different industry or sector. Mm -hmm. And look at it through the lens of strategic inflection points and ask the question, you know, what's going to change for that sector? How's that going to be different? Um, and then and then let people kind of speculate about what are some of the issues and shifts that are there. And I've done a whole variety of different sectors. I've done uh, the food business, uh, power generation. This this month is about the television and advertising business. Um, so it touches a lot of different sectors and it's, it's, I think people find it interesting. There are also archive copies, uh, under news on my website. So if, if I'm not working on your sector this month, you can go there and see if I've done something on it in the past. Sounds fantastic. Super nice. I, uh, you do so much. So I have one last fi rapid fire question. <laughs> yeah. What is your number one hobby? 
Hubby. Um, hubby, probably reading and working out. I, I try to do, I try to keep a balance around, you know, <laughs> doing this kind of thing and, and sort of reflecting and, and, and going to the gym and that kind of thing. So that's probably my number one hobby. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, nice. Sounds familiar. And then that's where your new innovative ideas pop up. So you can <laughs> run back to your desk. Or in, or in the shower afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds very familiar. Most creative places in the world, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Rita, thank you so much for your time. So that was really a power hour with Rita. I really enjoyed it and it was so much fun. It was, it was really, it's always like so surreal to see a strategy, such a big name and then having so much fun in one interview. It was really great. And I'm curious guys, like, what do you think? Do you have the entrepreneur mindset? And what about your organization? Do you cherish such a culture of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs with an organization? That's the question. Well, we all know now what to do with our careers so that we thrive not only now in the short term, on the long term as well so i'm sure we're going to speak to rita again in the future yes. we are not done yet picking her brain we heard her in september 2019 seeing around corners will be published so i'm sure that we'll be hearing more from her by that time for now make sure stay in touch with rita mcgrath on ritamcgrath.com you can find the link in the show notes she's also on social media Rita McGrath, we will share her mention. This episode was again sponsored by Earn More, Work Less. We give superpowers to your team. How does your team become less stressed, more focused, more structured, so that you achieve much more with the same resources you have today? So that you have fun and you have beautiful experiences because life is not only about work. Life is about creating beautiful experiences. That's right. Many people optimize only one area of their life. We help you and your team to optimize the total picture so that we get the best results for everybody involved. That's the most beautiful puzzle there is for us to solve. So that's the puzzle we've been working on and that we work on every day with our clients. EarnMoreWorkless.com to find out more. That's it for now. Let's all go out, make it a productive and fun day, and see you next week for another episode of The Influential Executive.